think they know for most of them. Uh, I didn't mention, I meant to mention earlier, speaking of the, um, uh, the lift, The lift group. There's a brochure in the back uh, with the names and faces of the uh, those in lift uh, on the back table back there. So if you want something to kind of take with you today, so you can pray for them by name, that would be uh, that would be a blessing, I'm sure, to them as well. Uh, that's available at the back table back there. Well, if you have your Bibles, open them with me to the book of Philippians. Chapter 1, I want to start our reading in verse number 3 through uh, verse 11. I don't know what page that is on your pew Bible, but... Paul writing to the church at Philippi. Sounds like a few of you are still finding it. All right. Verse number three says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the, with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Uh, pray with me. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this time we gather together. Just pray that you would help us set aside the distractions in our our minds and our, our lives for the few moments. We pray that you would, through your spirit, encourage us, speak to us, and we'll give you the glory for all that you do. It is yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today I want us to look at the latter part of this uh, thanksgiving and prayer uh, found in Philippians 1, uh, 3 through 11. We looked at the first part last week, uh, verses 1 through Eight, uh, somewhere around there, verses 1 through 8. And this week I want us to consider the prayer that Paul prays and maybe what lessons we uh, can glean from that. Uh, on the outset of that, let me just say that uh, it is interesting that Paul doesn't just say, I'm praying for you. Uh, let me just, by way of asking this morning, how many of you have said to someone this week, I'm praying for you? A couple of you. Quite a few, actually. That's pretty good. Well, uh, was that all that you said, or did you kind of explain the ways in which you're praying for them? Sometimes it is difficult to 
to kind of put into words and even know how to pray for someone else. And I would say that, that for all of us here, it would be good just to put a star by this passage in your Bible and, and just think when you are praying for someone, when you're praying for uh, uh, young people or not young people, however that falls, whoever you're praying for, Paul gives us a great example of how we can pray for someone else. But what is this prayer about? Well, verses 9 through 11 is a prayer uh, for their spiritual maturity, that they would grow in grace and in glory. And we'll look at that hopefully in more details as we go through this this morning. But why does he tell them, I'm praying for you and this is how I'm praying for you? Why even mention it? I, I tell people and I've sent people texts and and. and phone calls and other things like that and said, I'm praying for you, praying for you, uh, and, and, and those things like that. I don't always, sometimes I do, but I don't always explain why and how I'm praying for them. Sometimes it is because you know they have a need or they're going through dark times, but, but we don't explain the substance of our prayer. So I kind of wonder, at least that's the way my mind works sometimes, Paul, why are you telling them what you're praying for them about? Well, I think there's two reasons for that. One so that they would know Paul's desire for them. They would know what Paul hopes to see in their life, what Paul is asking God for. In some ways, when you tell someone else you're praying for them and how you're praying for them, you're communicating for them, especially those of you who are parents or grandparents or aunts and uncles praying for nephews, nieces, other people in your life, that that you have kind of a maturity level uh, to and and you're communicating to them what you desire to see in their life, how you desire to see God working. This is what I'm asking God for. That's what Paul's saying to them. You want to know how I'm praying for you? I'm praying this way. And this is what I'm asking God to intervene and how I'm asking him to move in your life. So it is in one way to, to let them know Paul's desire for them. And the same thing is true with us. And as we pray for one another, this is our desire. This is what we're petitioning God for but secondly I would say he's telling them this so that they would be moved and encouraged to go towards Paul's desire and God's will for their life and so as he's praying for them and their their um, example of love that it may abound more and more in their knowledge and those things like that as he explains to them what he's praying it is a motivation it is an encouragement to continue on moving in that direction so i think it has those uh, those functions it is both instructive and leading as he explains to them why he is praying for them and again i would just commend to you if you're struggling to figure out how to pray for someone lord answers those prayers that we pray god help them how many of you ever prayed that I don't mean that in a negative way, you know, like we say when some people that are just complete mess and there's, you, you just say you know where to start, Lord help them. We say that sometimes, right? Amen. Well, I do anyway. I don't know if you do or not. But, but, but other times we know people are hurting. We don't know where to go to. And so we might say, Lord, help them or encourage them or whatever. And, and those, are, those are prayers God hears faithfully. And I would encourage you to pray those. But there's other times when we come into the Word of God that he, Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, lays out things that we know to be God's will, things that he desires to see not only in the church that he's writing to, but in our lives as well. The case here, 
Verse number nine, he picks up his desire to see them grow, to mature. And so that's what we want to look at this morning, beginning of verse nine through 10. We have already seen at the beginning of this that Paul says, I am thankful for you. I have a deep love for you and appreciation for you. I am thankful for the partnership that we've had together in the gospel. I am confident that God will finish what he started and persuaded. And I think he's referring to their salvation, the full, uh, the full end of their salvation there that he's speaking about. And now he begins to, uh, to pray that God would bring this about in their lives, even now in the current situation. He prays for their spiritual maturity. And isn't that birth out of love? Don't you pray for others that they will grow in Christ because you love them? Because you care for them and like a father would his children or a mother or a, a grandparent looks at his grandchildren or her grandchildren and she begins to pray for them, motivated out of their love for them. Verse number 8 tells us this, For God is my witness how I yearn for you with all... or. or I yearn for you all. I think he's from the south, maybe. (laughs) Someone told me that. But anyway, I yearn for you all uh, with the affection of Christ Jesus. There's a love and affection he has for them. And so he is desirous to see them prosper, to see them uh, propel even more in the grace uh, and maturity and in the likeness of Jesus Christ. Well, he begins his petition in verse number 9, if you'll look at it with me, with an encouragement or request that they may excel in love. Verse number 9 says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Now, we practice something with a desire to improve. Some of you practice sports and hobbies and and even vocation with a desire to become more efficient, more, more effective, more proficient at whatever it is that you're doing. Sometimes it doesn't work very well with sports for some of us. But nevertheless, we practice hoping that in the exercise of doing something, it may become easier. And we may become better at it. And I think that's the kind of idea we see here in this encouragement that he's given to the church here. That they have practiced love, displayed love, and in exercising and continuing to love in certain ways that they would become more effective and proficient in displaying the love of Christ. I have a uh, cousin who is naturally gifted uh, piano player, good with music, and, and um, at an early age he learned to play the piano by ear. Now, some of you are wondering what that means. So am I. I don't understand that. But nevertheless, I think he can play the piano by ear. Very talented young man. Well, he's not a young man now. He's my age. So anyway, what happened later on in his life is he realized that, you know, it would be good if I went back and took piano lessons. He has a natural giftedness. He could play piano by ear. But if I took lessons so I could play by music, so I could learn to play sheet music. Well, he understood that even in his giftedness, even in all of his competency, it was the exercise and practice. It was the the using of those gifts that made him better and better uh, than he is today. And I think the same thing is true with the church here, the exercise of love. His his request, he rejoices in their, their love. He rejoices in the fact that they have partnered with him and they had gave and they've displayed their love. 
And yet his desire is that of a parent who not only rejoices that their kid took a step or two, now let go of the table and take a few more. And so we see this encouragement uh, to continue on. But it isn't just to the church of Philippi. The church of Thessalonians, likewise, was a church known for their love and their affection and their generosity. And yet Paul writes to them, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. As he's saying, as they have displayed their love, as known throughout all of Macedonia, now continue to exercise and practice and grow in the, in the act of love. Again, turn with me to the letter of Ephesians. His concern for the church of Ephesus is likewise the same. Some believe the letter here to Ephesus is more of a general letter to the churches in the region. But he says in verse number 17 of chapter 3, well, let's go back to verse number 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Now that's just a loaded statement anyways, just to begin with, just right out, right out of the gate. Verse 17, he goes on and says, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. His prayer for them is that, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and his power working in us, we would be established, rooted, and grounded in love. So much so, he goes over to chapter number 5 in his exhortation to the church there, and their practical living is that they would walk in love. Walk in love. That is a fitting word to use to describe the Christian faith. And in fact, without love, we cannot grasp the Christian faith at all. At first and foremost, what we find is the gospel is nothing short of a magnificent letter of or display of or act of God's love towards us through Christ Jesus. It's John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The gospel is the declaration and act of God's love, his Agape, selfless, is love towards us, not based upon our loveliness because we were at enmity with God, but based upon his ability to love. God is love. So it is fitting as we consider the Christian faith and even maturity in the Christian faith that it, it brings us to the element of growing in love. Growing in love because it is and it begins with God's love for us. But it's also the expression we come to understand of our, of our activity towards one another. It's not just love as in the sense of God loving towards us, but it is us receiving, knowing, growing in that love, receiving that love, and it's describing the act of loving that giving to others. It's the activity we are to be busy with between each other. We're to love one another. That's what he says in First Thessalonians. Though here 
Paul doesn't mention to the church who you're to love. He just says that it may abound more and more. It may excel or overflow in love. It is implying that this love would be your your deeds, your care, your kindness, your compassion, your mercy, all of it bathed and motivated for your or from your love. He's saying as you have loved and you've demonstrated that love towards Paul and I pray and my desire is that you would continue to grow in it. And that's the same thing true with us. As we we give and as we share our faith and as we counsel and as we care for one another, as we demonstrate demonstrate those active loves, we find that there is never an end of it. Never an end of the need of loving one another because we, we are all in a place where we need the care and encouragement of each other. And so he's saying, that, look, rejoicing with them what you've done and how God's graciously worked in your life. And he's encouraging them, guys, continue. I'm praying God would multiply what has already been done through you and in you. Even will speak later on in chapter number two about their mutual care for one another, that they should display it and show it among the body of Christ. And it is true. I, I, I think it's right, as one commentator stated, it is much easier to love a stranger whom you'll only meet for five minutes or maybe 20 when you're trying to work your way out the door. And you'll never see again, maybe than it is to love consistently a group of people over a period of time that you'll see week in and week out. And nevertheless, the encouragement is still the same. Love. Not just love, but abound in it. This is something he's praying that they will do. But he's not disconnecting it from its source, and we shouldn't either. Is already displayed back in verse number eight that this love that we love one another, the the act of love and the way in which we're motivated to care and 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 interact with one another is rooted in Christ Jesus Himself. He is the source of everything, if I could say it that way. Because Paul's own affections for them, his yearning, which speaks of a kind of warming feeling that he has for the church, longing to see them is with Christ or rooted in Christ Jesus himself. And so we grow in our demonstration of love as we grow in our depth and perception of the love of Christ. Remember Paul's prayer again in Ephesians. We didn't read on, but I'll read for you. As he prays for them that they would be grounded in love, he goes on to say, have that they might have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that has surpassed knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power work in us to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. What an amazing passage. It is as we grow in the depths of his love for us that we grow in our ability and demonstration of our love for others. I think that's why he connects the sentence the way he does. Not just that you would excel in love all by itself or disconnect love from your mind or from doctrine or from truth. How are we to grow in it? Well, we grow in, the, in our knowledge, what he says in verse number 9. 
Now, my prayer is that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Now, we live in a world where um, we have such access to, to everyone's thoughts. We don't even need to read mine. We just scroll on Facebook for about an hour, and then we just kind of got it all put together. You know, we just know. But one of the things we find is that it's easy to find people with big heads. And by that, I don't mean physically big heads, like their profile picture big heads, but this kind of idea that they have all this information, they're an expert on just about anything you want to talk about. We, we know what it's like to see knowledge, even religious knowledge, even Christians, Bible-toting uh, Christians, maybe even the big Bible-toting Christians who have this kind of aura about them that they know facts about the Bible and the doctrine and truth and all this other stuff, but they lack one key central ingredient. What is it? Love. And, of course, some of you might say to me, well, the Bible says Paul, even Paul, even wrote it, knowledge puffs up, right? So we, we've done in our, our, our churches over the, the past century, I guess, probably even longer than that, we've, we've tended to disconnect doctrine and, and our practical Christian living. Compassion and mercy and all those things are, are the things we strive after. Doctrine is kind of like a, uh, you know, it's an alternative course. Or, or it's for those people who have big heads and want to be on the Internet. But what is he saying here is that despite our own experiences with the abuse of those who have gained knowledge without love, is that love itself must be informed. It's not just love, love, almost like faith, believe in belief, or, or, or something without a definition. Love must be informed. One of the ways in which we grow in our display of love and it excels in our life is by our own spiritual growth, by our own understanding of what God has done for us. As we've already mentioned, Paul praying in Ephesus saying that I'm praying that you'll be able to comprehend those things which cannot be comprehended. Why? To equip you to love, to equip you to walk in love and in fellowship with one another. And so here we should not make enemies of things that has never been at odds. And that is doctrine and compassion and mercy and acts of love. We should love. Our love should be informed. Here the word knowledge is just simply that of knowledge. To know something fully or truly and, and have a full sense of knowing something. And, and it really begs the question, what is Paul talking about? We could say knowledge about a lot of things, knowledge about end times or knowledge about uh, the, the, who the Nephilim are or knowledge about all sorts of interesting facts in the Bible. But isn't it interesting when you get later on into chapter number three, Paul expresses his deep desire to know Christ, that I may know him. All true knowledge, all true doctrine is rooted and founded in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is our deepest desire, it is our, our longing, our greatest benefit to know him who saved us. It is as we study him, make it a habit of looking to him and learning of him, that it, it affects and impacts the way we live and enabling us to love deeper, more fully, more sacrificially. We 
begin to look past ourselves and begin to know what it is that he's done for us. And as we know those things, as we grow in those things, we are becoming more and more competent to love. Now, it is for us who have a small appreciation of the gospel, who thinks lightly of salvation, uh, no doubt if we find ourselves in that situation, it's because we're ignorant. And I don't mean that badly. I just mean that, that we don't understand exactly what it is Christ has done for us. And you, you can see how the two go together as we grow in our knowledge, that we grow in our ability to love, that I may know him. And to know, to know Christ is to love him. As Peter says, we have not seen him. It's true. Not one of us here have seen him. We've, we've not seen his, his face. I know there's pictures of him. There's a movie out that they have of him and all this other stuff. But we've not seen him. And yet he says, even though we've not seen him, you love him. How do you come to know him? Or how do you come to love him, though you've not seen him? Because you've learned of him. Because the Holy Spirit has is, is spread out the love of God in your hearts. And you've continued to grow in understanding what the Bible says and what it means. And how it describes his saving grace among you. Therefore, you, you and I are better equipped to serve and minister to others. Those who continue to grow and learn of who their Savior is. Those who are ministered by the knowledge and the work of the Holy Spirit through his word. But he adds to this knowledge the word discernment and all discernment. Some of your translation says something else here. Um, ESV has discernment. It's only used here in the New Testament. The word behind this, it's actually used in the Septuagint. That's a fun word to, uh, you can spell on your own. Uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament it's a Septuagint. You can just abbreviate that if you want LXX. It's helpful, isn't it? All kinds of stuff you learned this morning. And so it's used in Proverbs in some of the verses in Proverbs for the word wisdom. It's the idea to, uh, to see or to know, to carries the idea of knowing morally how to apply what you've learned in life. Not just know a bunch of facts, but through that knowledge, through growing and maturing, you're learning how to put into practice what God has, has revealed to you, how it applies to different situations in our life. One commentator has summed it up this way, rightly, the combination of knowledge and depth of insight unites personal knowledge of Christ and practical understanding of people. Knowing Christ and understanding people are both necessary for love to abound more and more. His prayer is that they would excel in love and they excel abundantly or continually uh, more and more in displays of love as they grow in knowledge and, and, and discernment. But also look at verse number 10 as he begins this. So that, or for this reason, you may approve what is excellent. The idea that he's saying here is that in growing in knowledge and wisdom and in love, you may be able to understand how to live this out, to how to live and act in such a way that is best. That's not the idea, some suggest, of, of what, is, what is bad versus what is good. Others 
say that it is better to understand this, what is good versus what is best. We have the conversation in Christianity many times, what, what, is the, what, what can I do or what can I get away with? What is my freedom? What is my limits? And you, you have this conversation all in the idea of what is legal for me. But growing in love and understanding of it and expression of it doesn't ask this. How can I minister to others around me? It, it, it takes me out of the picture altogether. Paul demonstrates that example when he speaks about his own freedom in Christ and then, and then expresses that he would not use it to be a stumbling block to others. You'll see that again mentioned here at the end of verse number 10 being blameless. And so he says that you may approve, that you may know how to examine and to, to see what is best. It doesn't happen overnight. The word approve is that of testing gold coins uh, to validate their validity. You, we do that with money now. There's certain markers you mark on a, on a bill, whatever that is, and then it shows up, and whether it's true or whether it's not. And so it's that idea of... of Testing or proving. Some say the word is rooted in, in sunlight or, or being exposed by sunlight, what is in the natural day. And so that God is growing in us and maturing in us how we are to walk plainly and openly able to choose what is good and excellent. You and I, uh, that is God's work in our life now. Paul's prayer for the Philippian church is, is really a declaration of God's will for us. That we would grow in our, and excel in love. That we wouldn't be settled like, uh, like some tend to get. But that we would continue on growing in our understanding of who Christ is. Understanding how to live in this world and understanding how to walk in harmony with one another, that we would grow mature. But secondly, I want us to notice in the second part of verse number 10, not only is he calling us to excel in love, or to excel in likeness. He says, so that you may approve what is excellent, so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. And let me just say this, the greatest effect of Christianity. And some of us might finish that statement with some sociological discussion. What good is Christianity brought into the world? We think of hospitals and universities and, and even there's a, a, a great impact on the Western mindset and, and many of the morals we used to have here at, the, at this country. And so there's a lot of things like that that we could look to medicine but i would venture to say and i don't think i'm out on a limb saying this the greatest impact or greatest effect of of god's grace of christianity is upon the life that has been born again you if you've been saved this morning greatest impact of the gospel and his saving grace is is not, it does impact society. You don't take that wrongly, but, but it's what it's done for you. What it's done in you. Didn't you see that? And some of you may not remember, but you, there was a darkness. 
Before Christ came and turned the lights on, we were filled with skepticism towards God, towards religion, towards anyone who said they had an idea or a plan or a way or, or this is what you're supposed to do. This is kind of this whole, I don't, I'm not sure about this. I don't know if I trust God. And, and some of us, even more than that, had harder thoughts towards God built up by this slavish fear that one day we're going to stand before him and give an account and face judgment. The, the promise of the return of Christ was nothing but dread. It was not a promise of hope and and joy and anticipation, it was something to be dreaded. I remember years ago in the military, and, and they used to have these things called phone cards. Does anyone know what that is? Calling cards, you know? Well, the military gave them out. It's kind of nice. Uh, it saved me from having to call collect. But anyway, they used to do that too. You push O and you could, never mind. And I was calling home one night and I called my folks and they were gone. So I called someone else and they were gone. I called someone else and they were gone. Every phone number I knew, and back then you used to have to know phone numbers. I mean, it was something you had to memorize. And, and every phone number I knew, it was empty. It was a blank. It was a, it was, nobody was home. Can you guess the thought that ran through my mind? The rapture doesn't happen and I'm left behind. Because living in sin, living at enmity with God and against God in his will, the return of Christ, the anticipation of Christ was dreadful. And it is for anyone outside of Christ. And this is where we all were. Now, now some of us may have been turned towards God or, or been somewhat pious or a little bit religious or, or something like that. But if we're honest, when we turned around to see the God we were serving, it was not the God of the Bible. It was the God of our own creation. This is what we were before, before God came and saved us. And now... Him you did not delight in, you delight in. Isn't that a miracle? You ever sat down and think 50 years ago for some of you, some of you 20, some of you five years ago, there's no way I would think I would be where I am now. But for the grace of God, you wouldn't be. But you delight in him. You, you long to see him. The darkness which once en engulfed you has now been dispersed by the light of, of his face and his pleasure. What a change it's made. And let me just say, Christian, that you ought to bless God for that. Take a moment somewhere in your life and just give God the glory because you're not here on your own. It's the old expression, illustration they used to give as they seen a turtle on a fence post. You realize he didn't get there by himself. It is the grace of God and that transformation he makes in our life. As one songwriter writes in that old hymn, Amazing Grace, who himself was a drunk and a slave trader and a wicked man, found himself a minister of the gospel in the later years of his life. It was a song of his testimony, but a testimony of all who've come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Now the return of Christ is something we long for, something that brings hope, excitement, anticipation. John, at the end of Revelation, out of all the dreadful things he saw, says at the end of that book, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. 
Now, not only the return of the Lord is something we anticipate, and there's much that we can anticipate through that. But just think about this one truth for a moment, Christian. At the return of the Lord, the Bible says you will be like him. Don't worry, you won't be him. But you'll be like him. The dust and the hindrances and the, the, the struggle, the curse which we, is wrapped up in this fleshly body, the, the struggling and the fighting with sin and all those things that we experience now that hinders us now, all those things will be put aside, will be, will be cast away, will be, will be swallowed up in the victory and overwhelming glory that will be revealed in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. What a glorious thought that is. Freedom from the curse, not in progression as it is today through sanctification, but possession fully in the day he comes. And we've already noted the, the confidence that we can have in that, that in, in verse earlier in chapter, verse number six, that, that he who began the good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. He will finish what he started. And so here, Paul pointing again for the day of the Christ or for the day of Christ. He is concerned with their preparation, their progress till then. Here he's displaying two characteristics of the Bible. You could search through it and find many more. But here he shares two characteristics and desires and prayers that he has for the church. Not only will we be then blameless and pure but his desire that we would now live in such a way that is pure and blameless. Pure just simply means sincere, without mixture or hidden motives. You know, doing something uh, because you got something else in the back of your mind rolling around that you'll get out of the deal sort of thing. Loving in a way that is, is kind of always sided towards you and what you get out of the situation, whether it's love he's speaking here or the Christian life uh, as a whole, he's trying to encourage us that Christ's likeness is displayed in, in purity. We are not to be hypocritic. There was a cute little kid's song that says hypocritter, but I'm not going to sing it for you. You can Google it. basically says you know you want me to sing it for you and i'm debating whether i should <laughs> basically says say one thing and do the opposite so you see how it works when you're in art you can do that yeah so his desire is that they would not live divided or mixed up and we might wonder what he's if it's just the motivation of love or motivation of other things but uh, I read a quote from Craig Troxell as he speaks about purity in the Christian life, and he makes this provocative statement in his book on loving God with all your heart. Let me just share it with you. He said, Christ commends the pure heart that is being refined. It is not divided in its priorities or confused by mixed motives. It is a heart devoted to God and not distracted by idols. And we could probably stop right there and feel the tension in what he's saying but he goes on not only distracted by idols but selfishness and pride and fame and money 
quoting J.C. Riles, Trostle goes on and says, The right heart is honest and single and true. There is nothing about it of falsehood, hypocrisy, or part acting. It is not double or divided. Basically, Troxel's conclusion of this definition is simply this. Purity of your heart is to desire one thing. Christian, how is your heart? How is your desire? Are you single-minded? That may be a loaded question. You you may be wondering what do you mean by that? What does it mean to be single-minded? Here he says that underlying what Troxel is trying to get to, underlying of the undivided heart, the single-mindedness, is this desire to live for the glory of God, for the devotion of God alone. That the, that the highest uh, ambition is that we are his and he is ours and we're living out that relationship day in, day out in our interaction. To be pure of heart is to be fully devoted and in our motives, fully devoted in our actions. And I want to just say this, that God in his mercy often, and I say this very kindly and out of experience, often reveals to us when we are not. Because he loves us. And so he brings up those things in our life which has robbed Uh, robbed our attention, distracted us, and taken away our devotion that was meant for him. And in so doing, revealing those things, that we may repent of them, lay them aside, and turn to Christ, who uh, who is promised to us, or has promised to us the Psalms, that in his presence is fullness of joy. His desire is that they would be pure, single-minded, And there is a, secondly, he says in verse number 10, that they would be blameless. What does blameless mean? Well, some suggest it may be the act of causing others to stumble, that they would be without uh, without the idea of causing other people's woe. Maybe they're, they're, um, the way they live, the way they choose, their freedom in Christ, or what they claim to be their freedom of Christ is a snare to someone else, and they just keep laying that out in front of them. So maybe he's speaking about that. I think it could include that. But, but I think dealing with the character here, he's speaking about that you yourself may be without fault. That you may live in a way that is consistent with God's word and God's work in your life. Now, let me just say this as a word of grace. We have a greater desire for this than we do possession. Amen? Because what we find is our desire, our, our appetite and our ability, however all that works out, our eyes and our appetite don't always line up together. We desire uh, purity and blamelessness, and we fail often, don't we? And yet therein grace is given to us. And reminder that at the day of Christ, one day you and I will stand blameless, clothed in his righteousness. Clothed in the righteousness that has been tried and proven over 33 and a half years of walking this earth, fulfilling every jot and tittle of the law of God and always loving the Father, always honoring him, always always loving his neighbor as himself, never violating his neighbor consistently day in, day out. He says that my meat is to do the will of my Father. 
and all of that lived out and carried out is given to us. I think that's what he goes into next in verse number 11. As we conclude with this, fill with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. We are to bear fruit. And that fruit that we bear is is consistent with the work of God doing in us. It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit through us. It is that righteousness in one way as we see that righteousness is which is declared about us. And, and that really is the offer of the gospel. And those of you here this morning that maybe you wonder what Christianity is all about. It's about the fact that the best that you can do is never good enough. It will never fix the problem of sin and the problem of a guilty conscience. It will never make you right and just before God. It is in it is unable, the Bible says, even the good that we do, if if we could just offer up the best that we could offer is is far short of what God's righteous, holy law demands. But the gospel is the fact that he could do all of those things. And by faith, those who come to him by faith, repenting of their sins and putting their faith in Jesus Christ, they, they receive his righteousness. They're clothed in his goodness. They've, they, they have the fulfillment of the law checked off because he fulfilled the law. We're, we're covered by him. That's what, that's what we mean by declared righteous. We're, we're declared righteous. Not that we, we were righteous. No. But he was righteous and imputed to us is his righteousness because he took our sinfulness and our unrighteousness at the cross. That is truly a gift from God. Do you believe that? Those of you who struggle sometimes of trying to do the best that you can do so God will love you and care for you and do all this other stuff, what a, that is frustration. And it misses the mark of what God offers to you. Through Jesus Christ. He offers this not because you are good enough. Or almost good enough. He offers it to us because he loves us. And knows that we were never able enough. Competent enough to save ourselves. But there's also here the idea of this practical righteousness. Which is lived out in our life. We live in obedience to God's word and according to the Holy Spirit. We, we bear the fruit of righteousness and growing in sanctification. But even that, Christian, let me just say this, is through Jesus Christ. Just as we find in Hebrews, Jesus is better. I was just trying to figure out a way to say Hebrews this week because I miss it. And so here in Philippians, we find Jesus is the source of all that we need in this life. Let me conclude with that. We'll, all of this for the purpose, express purpose for the glory and praise of God. Well, that is a mouthful in itself, and maybe we'll visit that again next week. His desire and his prayer for them is that they would grow continually more and more in their display, in their work of love, through the knowledge and discernment found in in Christ. And that would continue to grow in their pureness and blamelessness. 
until the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is God's desire for us as well. And all of that's accomplished through the Holy Spirit and our Savior. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this morning as we gather together. Thank you for your word and thank you for this message uh, that you have given to us from Paul to the church at Philippi. Lord, we just pray that you would use it to encourage us, strengthen us in Jesus' name. Amen.